Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the very word of God. Well, just like Pastor Daryl, I have a burden this morning to uh, help all of us, starting with myself, to not yawn through those verses, which are remarkable Uh, in what they proclaim and what they teach, so much so that the Apostle Paul has written this letter to the Romans saying he's not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And right here in Romans 8 verses 1 through 11, but especially in these last three verses, verses 9 through 11, uh, there is help for us to not fall asleep after Christmas, to not miss the implication of what it means that Christ has come. The days after Christmas, the days after the coming of our Lord, are filled with wonder and joy and amazement, even more so, I think, than you could possibly have had before Christmas. If we understand the good news, if we understand the story, if we understand the gospel. So let me see if I can help us this morning. I want to kind of build this sermon around three things we should know Three things you've got to know. And when I say no, I don't just mean let me transfer information into your head. You, you already know these things. Nothing I'm going to say today, I don't think, will surprise you. Maybe. There's some interesting things I think this text unpacks for us. But, but no, like 
every moment of your life, every day as a Christian, there are three things you can know, you can call to mind that will help you to live in the reality that the Lord has come. So first, we need to know the age in which we live. Know the age in which we live. Second, we need to know the power with which we live it. The power with which we live it. And then third, we need to know the Savior for whom we live our lives. Know the age, know the power, know the Savior. Let's take a look at these three things this morning. First, in this text, we see the necessity for you and me, who would call ourselves Christians, to know, to know, to know the age. That is, know the time in which you now live. The Advent tradition, of course, the candles, are meant to help us keep track of time. We, we can look with each lighting of the candle how many Sundays there are until Christmas comes. But now we've got them all lit. So know the age, know the time in which you now live here on the other side of Christmas. We Christians believe, of course, that the greatest transition of time in all of human history took place in and around the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So it is crucial that we know this, that we know the age, know the time in which we now live. The first four verses of chapter 8 emphasize the truth that there is now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been united to the one in whom and by whom the condemning power of sin was itself condemned, Christians for 2,000 years now have lived their lives, according to Paul's gospel, verse 2, free from the law of sin and death. We now live in the freedom, he calls it, of the law of the spirit of life. These are completely opposite realms, two different realities in which a person might live. Verses 5 to 8 that we looked at last week described the old age. Enslaved to the law of sin and death, death is the only possible mindset, verses 5 and 6. This mindset puts us at odds with God, hostile to him, unable and even unwilling to submit to his law and to his ways, verse 7. We incapable of pleasing God at all, verse 8. That's the old age. That is life outside of the kingdom of God. That is the reality before Christmas. Everyone in history lived in that old age. Now, that's not to say that there were no saints in the old age, no genuine believers. Of course, we wouldn't call them Christians. That'd be an anachronism. But people who were, were faithful, believed in the one true God. Yet all of them lived in an era that was like the days before Israel's exodus from Egypt. These saints groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. It's the, it's the same groan that Paul described in the previous chapter in Romans when he wrote in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
These saints trusted in God's faithfulness. They believed a day would come, a day of deliverance would come. The prophets, we are told in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, searched and inquired carefully about what life would be like on the other side of this salvation. But that kind of day, that era was a mystery to them. Think of it. So the strong adversative conjunction in verse 9 that's translated in ESV, however, is meant to encourage and inspire you, Christian. You are not in the flesh. You don't live in that old age. This statement is meant to be a relief to the one who knows all too well what Paul was talking about in verses 5 through eight. It's good news for the one who has felt the frustration of feeling completely helpless against the power of sin and death. Paul here does not exhort people to stop being in the flesh. Such an idea would be as futile as telling a leopard, change your spots. Rather, Paul is wanting us to see the implication here for us who are united to Christ, who are no longer under any condemnation from sin. If you are a Christian, that is, you are one who trusts in Jesus Christ, then please, please realize this. Wake up every day and realize this. You are a new creation in Christ. The old way... The old era, the old age has passed away. The new way, the new era, indeed the promised new age, the true new age has come in Jesus. Now, let's think a little bit about what, it, what this new way is, this new era that has now dawned upon human history, the day in which we now live. The Bible here calls it the way of the Spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, let's make it clear. The Spirit here is the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be in the Holy Spirit? Read on. The next phrase in verse 9 sheds some light. Paul says you are in the Spirit if... Look what he says. If, in fact, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. So think, to be in the Spirit is for the Spirit to be in you, to live in you, to take up residence within you. Now, let's be honest. Christians, and I mean like of every stripe and form, come up with some really strange ideas about what it must mean for the Holy Spirit to be in us. Now, I don't mean to cast suspicion this morning on all the different experiences that Christians sometimes attribute to the Holy Spirit. That's not my goal. But what I do wish to help us think about is what this must mean, what Paul must mean in light of the entire biblical story. Can we do that for a moment? The Old Testament talks about a visible manifestation of God's presence, usually described as a cloud. 
All throughout the book of Exodus, we read about the presence of God like a cloud, a pillar of cloud guiding the people by day. This is what the Jewish rabbis would eventually call the Shekinah. Have you heard of that word? The word Shekinah is a Hebrew word, and it means that which dwells. The word Shekinah is the evidence that God has taken up residence among his people. God is here. God is present. God is not a long ways away. He's literally among us. So God commanded that a sanctuary be built, Exodus 25, verse 8, so that he could dwell in their midst. The tabernacle and later the temple was the place where God's glory was seen. The the, the temple was, in Old Testament theology, heaven on earth. It's the place you could go and literally meet God, encounter the God of the universe. It's the place where God and man would meet together. This was always God's intention, to dwell on earth among his people. That's why he created the universe, so that he could live here with us. But of course, in the Old Testament story, disaster came to Israel when the glory of God departed the temple shortly before Israel's exile to Babylon, and the temple itself was raised. Ezekiel chapter 10, along with many of the other prophets, described the horrible event. And you'll remember, even after returning from exile last year, or this year, we studied Ezra together, remember that? Remember, they built the temple. And what's the expectation as they rebuild the temple? This is the place. Remember, this is the place where heaven and earth meet, where God literally dwells among his people. This was the great expectation. But even after returning from exile, even after building the temple, Israel knew something wasn't right. The Shekinah wasn't manifest. God wasn't in the temple. So when you get to the first century, when you get to the time when Jesus was born, this was the great hope. This was the great expectation percolating among Israel, among God's people. God will soon finally bring the exile to an end. Yes, we're living in our land, but we're still under the power of Roman rule and dominion. And yes, there's a temple there, but something's not quite right. We're still waiting for the Shekinah, right? For God to dwell among his people, to take up residence in his temple again. This is what you're doing if you're a first century Jew. This is your expectation. This is your hope. This is what you're longing for. And this is what Paul is talking about. Paul's not just making up life in the spirit out of nowhere. He is speaking specifically about the Old Testament story. This is what he says has now come to pass. To be in the spirit means to be in the situation or condition in which God is once again dwelling among his people. Whoa, that's an astounding claim. And Paul says, now watch what he says, if you are a Christian, you are now living in the time of that fulfillment. You are now living in an era 
in which God now dwells with you again among his people. Why then does he speak not only of Christians being in the spirit, but also of the Holy Spirit being in us? That's strange, isn't it? I mean, he could have just said, you are now in the spirit. You are now in the era in which God now dwells with his people. But he says more than that. Look what he says. Not only, is the, not only are you in the spirit, but the Holy Spirit is in us. You know why he says this? Because... Where you see the spirit dwelling, where you see the Shekinah, you see the temple of God. This is a shocking reality that the new era has dawned. Where is God's temple? Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 3.15, don't you know? You are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. The Spirit of God, the Shekinah, dwells in you. That's who you are. You see? To no longer be in the flesh, but rather in the Spirit, is more about the time into which we have now come than it is about some mental or psychological state we might try to get ourselves worked up into. Again, we Christians are weird when we talk about the Spirit. Again, not to cast doubt or, or suspicion, but I was at a funeral one time, and there was some moving music, and, you know, it was emotional, of course, like funerals are, and the, 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 the preacher got up, no, no condemnation, no condemnation, but he said, don't you feel the Spirit? And I just thought, I just feel sad. I just feel sad that my friend is dead. To be in the spirit is not so much. You, you know this. Sometimes Christians, you're like, I'm just not getting it. I'm not feeling what my person on the other side of the room is feeling right now. Like, what's going on? To be in the spirit is more about the time in which you live than about the feelings you might have. You are in the spirit, Paul says, not if you act this way. He says you are in the spirit if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. If God's spirit is once again in his sanctuary, and if that sanctuary is shockingly the people of God themselves, that is your very body, your person, then we find ourselves right now living in the future. In the great day of promise that's supposed to come at the end of time, the promised and anticipated age to come has already dawned upon us. We live at the greatest moment in all of human history. After Christmas, the apostles of Jesus clearly believed that this was the case. I want you to know I'm not making this up. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, you'll recall from Acts chapter 2, the speaking of the mighty works of God Acts 2.11, in the language of people from every nation under heaven, verse 5, was the sign that God's spirit had returned and filled this temple. It was, Peter says, the fulfillment of exactly what God had said would happen according to the Old Testament prophet Joel. Chapter 2, Joel 2.16-21. The last days had now come, and the evidence that this was the case was the very real presence of the Holy Spirit once again dwelling in his temple. Now, of course, not every human being on earth comprises the temple in which God himself now dwells by his spirit. Paul says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, still lives in an old age, 
Now, this statement does at least two things. First, it rejects the possibility that anyone would be able to claim to be counted among God's people, but still enslaved to the prevailing power of sin, to still be in exile. You can't do that. If you, if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a believer in Jesus, you cannot then at the same time say, but I'm still in exile under the power of sin. You can't do that. Not because of Christmas, you can't do that. As we've seen, the realm of the Spirit is the realm in which sin has been condemned. The mindset is one of submission to God and His ways rather than the rebellious ways of sin. If you claim to be a Christian, you cannot rightly claim to be defenseless against the power of sin and Satan. Because to be a Christian means you now live with the prevailing power of God's Spirit taking up residence within you, your very person. Second, it teaches us that we live in this time in which it's a strange time. The old age and the new age cohabit. They're both upon us. The the two eras are mingled together. As Christians, then, we live in the midst of fallen mortal world with a redeemed immortal life. That's strange. That's really weird. Not everyone is in the spirit rather than in the flesh. So the world that we see around us, the world you wake up to tomorrow morning, is at the same time passing away and becoming new. Confused? It's one of the great paradoxes of the Bible. But this explains the strange experience that Christians have in the world that we live in right now. It explains the difficulty of your Monday morning. Let me show you in the next verse. What verse 9 is meant to do is encourage. It's not meant to cast doubt on the legitimacy of one's claim to be a Christian. Listen to me carefully. It is not our business, Christians, to go around doing tests to detect whether or not your neighbor has the power of the Holy Spirit within them. Of course, the Bible exhorts all of us to examine yourself, to see whether or not you are in the faith. But at the same time, if this is all true, if Paul's gospel is real, so much so that he said, I'm not ashamed, like I am eager to tell you this. If that's true, then we should begin to see the difference in the lives of Christians over against non-Christians. There should be some kind of distinction. It should look differently. If the new era has dawned and you live in this new era, the Shekinah is dwelling in you, temple of God, then something should be different. And the difference should be as clear as the difference between heaven and hell. And in fact, the difference will be made clear the more that we Christians know not only the age in which we live, but second, the power with which we live it. So here we go. If Christ is in you, verse 10, what? (laughs) What should it look like? All right, Paul, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, okay, I'm, I believe you, even though I don't feel it. This is what God said would happen. The Shekinah is here, takes up residence. So what's it going to look like? 
But wait just a minute. Paul pulls another one on us. Notice what he says. He didn't say, if the Spirit is in you. He said, if Christ is in you. (laughs) So what does that mean? What does it mean for Christ, for the Messiah, to be in us? You know, you, you hear all these Christians all the time. They, Jesus lives in my heart. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean for Christ to be in us? To belong to Christ means that one also has the spirit of Christ that he has sent. And that is what it means for Christ himself to be in a person. When the spirit of God takes up residence within you, the Bible can also speak that way and say, Christ is in you. If you're not a Trinitarian, you just have no way of explaining this. So we are familiar, of course, with the important doctrine. We've spent some time together as a church in the last year or two uh, on the important doctrine of the believer's union with Christ, the idea that you and I are in Christ, united to Christ, but Christ in you is not quite the same idea. They're not the same thing. For Christ to be in us means not so much a status as much as it means a power. Christ in you means that the Messiah himself, the power of the Messiah himself You possess that power. You possess that power because you are the very sanctuary in which God's own Holy Spirit now dwells as was promised would come to pass in the last days. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, upon every believer from the least to the greatest. I'm looking at temples that possess the power of God himself. Now, that's, a, that's quite a promise, but Paul's more specific about what this means. What should we expect if we Christians possess the very power of Christ himself? That, that should get you like more excited than that present under the tree. <laughs> like, let's unpack that. I want to see what's in here. I want to see what this means. And so this has got to be, this has to be something extraordinary, right? I mean, if this is true, just for the sake of argument, skeptic, let's say it's true. Let's say you really do possess the power of God himself, of the Messiah, the power of the Holy Spirit. What then does that mean? And the first thing Paul says in verse 10 is a concessive statement. Although the body is dead because of sin. In other words, the first thing you got to know is what it doesn't mean. Our present possession of the power of Christ does not mean, get this, It does not mean that you will now somehow never suffer, never die. 
That is the lie of the so-called prosperity gospel. Its lie is exposed right here in Romans 8.10 as well as in everyday Christian experience. I don't have to tell you that. You know, don't you? I'm looking at bodies. You know the pain of suffering. Christians are not promised a sparing from the woes of life. To possess the power of Christ in you does not mean you're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. And the reason why that is true is simple. Paul tells us because the body is dead because of sin. The reason we Christians are not immune from pain and suffering, from growing old and dying, is because we're sinners. And the wages of sin is death, God says, and God is serious about it. Our mortality is an indication we are guilty. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like that, you know, it's getting a little snowier in here, in the beard. And when you see it, you can say, our pastor's getting wiser. That's okay. I like that. Just bring it on. But you can also say, he's dying. I know it's morbid. But listen, this is what, the, if you're going to know the power of Christ in you, you must know what it doesn't mean. God has indicated that the soul who sins will die, and our mortality is an indication we're guilty. Think of it. If any of us Christians were somehow now able to live forever, never die, never suffer, everything goes well, prosperity, life, this would not be proof of the power of God within us. It would be proof that God is a liar. It would, not, it would be proof that God is unjust, that God is unrighteous. Look at it the other way. Death, as a consequence of sin, is proof that God is not unjust, that God does not turn a blind eye to sin, that God will see that sin is punished. And you're thinking, but Ben, but Ben, wait, 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 Romans 8, 1, Romans 8, 1. D- does this now negate the truth that there is now No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I'm saying it does not contradict that. Christians, to not be under condemnation does not mean you always win in your trials. It does not mean you are always cured of your bodily ailments. Or that you are not necessarily trusting God if you seek medical intervention or a vaccination. Or that you save money for retirement. I know you know that. But as a pastor, I've seen far too many Christians quickly derailed in their faith when things don't go right. I've seen it. As a fellow Christian, I feel the same temptation. But we must not dwell too long on this point because this is not Paul's main point. In Romans 8.10, at all, at all. The concessive language is meant to heighten the greater point that follows. It's like you ask a friend, hey, can you do this? And they say, well, I'm not able to do that, but 
you hope that what follows is better than what you asked for, this is better. This is what it does mean to no longer be under the condemnation of sin and the judgment of God. Yes, the bad news is bad, but the good news is infinitely better. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, the spirit here is, again, again, the Holy Spirit. I think the NIV 84 version has a lowercase s. They corrected it in 2011, thankfully. This is the Holy Spirit who even now dwells in every single Christian. So the consolation is not, get this, Oh, you about to get this. The consolation is not, well, your body will die, but your spirit, lowercase s, that immaterial part of you will live forever, so take heart. That's not what Romans 8.10 says. You got to get this straight to understand Paul's gospel. The spirit, Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, making our bodies God's very temple. This body then is not a shell in which the real you resides. The the Bible does not dichotomize the human being like that. Our bodies are precisely the real you that Christ gave his life to redeem. So the point here is to say, yes, yes, of course your body will die because of sin. Don't you? Of course you know that. God is just. He is righteous. The soul who sins will die. And the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. God is not a liar. But, 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 don't you know, Christian? Don't you know that the Holy Spirit has now, the Shekinah, has taken up residence where? In your body. In you. Don't you know what that means? It means that it is life, not death, which is your ultimate destiny. It is the promise that even an Old Testament saint like Job could hope for when he wrote, even though worms destroy this corpse in my flesh, I will see God. It's the reason Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son, considering that God was able even somehow to raise him from the dead. Abraham had never seen a resurrection. You die, you rot. That's what Abraham knew. But somehow, this is the promise of God. The presence of the Shekinah means not death. It means the reversal of death. It means the body comes to life. Wow. So I was writing this sermon. I was just overwhelmed by this truth and just asking God, would you help me, please? I want to live my life knowing the age in which I live and the power with which I live it. So I, I, wrote, I, wrote, a, I wrote a couple lines of verse. I am no poet, but I tried. Maybe this will help. Because sin has been condemned, the Holy Spirit resides within. So though the body will surely die, the power of Christ must vivify, make alive. If the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, then it means life. 
it guarantees life. How can this be so? If the body dying proves that God is just, would not the body coming back to life, being raised from the dead, then nullify that justice? And the answer is no, but only because, only because of the gospel of Jesus. The presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling now within us means life. Verse 10 says, look, because of righteousness, because of righteousness, righteousness is Paul's way of speaking first and foremost about God's own righteousness, God's own vindication, the evidence, the proof that God himself is not a liar that God himself keeps his word, that God himself is just. And the evidence for the righteousness of God, the evidence for this justification is the faithfulness of Christ Jesus himself. Remember, the justification of God comes into question because of this precise problem. God has promised to judge sin. At the same time, he's promised to save sinners through his chosen family. Remember that? That's the great promise of the Old Testament. But it creates a great dilemma. The takeover of Israel by sin creates this massive dilemma for the justice of God. A dilemma that no one could see a solution for. How is God going to be just against sin? Carry out condemnation against sin? And then somehow save the world in the very place where sin has taken up residence the most, in his own people. And this is a dilemma no one could solve until Jesus came, until Christmas. Don't you see? When Jesus came, it was plainly revealed that he was the promised promised Messiah, the one in whom God has now condemned sin. And because sin has been condemned, because the temple has been cleansed, God's spirit can now reside among his people who are reconstituted around Jesus, the Messiah. Here we see the true Israel, the true people of God, comprised now of both Jew and Gentile alike. And so because of the righteousness of God, the presence of the spirit within us can mean only one thing, vivification, life, even though the body dies. The promise made to us Christians is the body will live. The body will live. Now, lest there be any doubt about what verse 10 is talking about, you find in verse 11 the explicit promise that our bodies are guaranteed to be resurrected from the dead just as Jesus was raised on Easter morning. And this future hope guaranteed by the Spirit now within has massive implications for how we live our lives in the present. Not only must we know the age in which we live and the power with which we live it, but I pray that God would help us every day to wake up and know the Savior for whom we must now live forever, now and forever. Yeah, I wish, I wish that we Christians could always see ourselves with the confidence that Paul could see himself and all other Christians. When I read Paul's letters, I think, Lord, just help me think of my brothers and sisters like this. Help me think of us together. By the way, you know that God's temple is not, he doesn't have lots of temples. 
you are the temple because you are brought into a family, into a body. This is why it matters that we're in the room together. The Christian gospel is very physical. It matters that you rub shoulders or maybe give a hug with your mask on. You know, to each other. Like This matters to God because we together as the body of Christ are his temple. And I want you to see here what Paul could see because he knew the Old Testament. He knew, this, he knew the story. And we need to know the story too. Paul is the diligent Jew that he was. He knew the promise, like the promise of Ezekiel 37. You've read that chapter before and you're like, what in the world? Here's the promise. One day, God has said he, his, his spirit would, would move and give life to dry, dead bones. You remember that story? Paul knew that this meant Israel. That is the temple. God's chosen people would live again. Theirs would literally be a life from the dead, a resurrection that would happen upon belief in Messiah. When Messiah comes, there will be a great reversal. This is the Jewish hope. All prevailing powers would fall. God's people would stand uncondemned. You see it? This is what a good Jew is waiting for. And, and, and every Jew knew, every good, every good believer in the Old Testament knew that this would come at the end of the age. And the great Jewish expectation and hope was maybe today. Maybe we're alive to see the day. And the strange events that followed the Roman crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth did not cause Paul to lose his faith in the Jewish hope, but instead to see that it had now been fulfilled. The great promise had come to pass. The resurrection had come. There really was a resurrection from the dead. This was a shock to Paul as it was to Jesus' own disciples. They weren't expecting this. They expected a resurrection at the end of the age, but not right here, not in this strange period in time. No one expected a single resurrection separated from the rest of the saints. So what what did this mean? What did this mean? And Paul's task was not to carve out a new religion, but to reinterpret the Jewish scriptures in light of Christ's death and resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus meant that the entire storyline of the Bible would need to be reread, reconstituted around the person and work of Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel. Now it would all make sense. Now every single word of the Old Testament would be fulfilled. It would all come to realization in Jesus. We now know who he is and we can read our Bibles that way. Now I'm asking here as we come to the end, why should you and I and any other non-Jew care about the Jewish religion? (laughs) Why would you even care about that? The reason is because the Jewish promise, the Jewish hope, the promise made to Abraham is that through Israel, salvation would come to the world, to the entire cosmos. Why should you believe that any more than you would believe any other religious sect that comes to your door and says, we are the hope of the world. We got good news for everyone. Why would you believe this one? And the answer is because Jesus was raised. 
This then is the hope of the world. This is good news for everyone. This is what the world needs most of all. They need the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Just consider it. Given the enormous devastation we see all around us, do you pay attention or do you try not to listen? (laughs) What else would such a global cosmic salvation look like if not a resurrection from the dead? The reversal of all death and decay. What else could you possibly hope to see if you want to see progress in the world? Is it this political agenda or this one? Is this what your hope is going to be in? And how would you know, even if you saw that thing win and that progress made, how would you know then that the world is actually getting better? How would you know it's getting worse? How could you possibly know? Now consider again verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then what? What would that mean? It means that the same one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who lives right now in you. Notice in verse 11, the resurrection of Jesus is mentioned twice, but it's said two different ways. First, the first one, it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus. It refers to the historical event, the very real human being, Jesus of Nazareth, who walked out of a Palestinian tomb. But the second, the resurrection of the Christ, refers to what that then means. This one who was raised is the Messiah. He is the chosen representative of his people so that what is true of him is true for all that he represents. Because Jesus was raised and because Jesus is the Messiah, we who are united to him must necessarily rise as well. So what now? What, who, what, does, what difference does that make if it's true? It means that, yes, we have resurrection to look forward to. And that is a powerful source of comfort, especially at the moment of death in the funeral home at the gravesite. But it's more than that. These verses are the answer to the cry of Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer has now been made plain. God would deliver through Jesus the Messiah. And here's how he would do it. He would do it in resurrection power. Not in preventing pain, suffering, death, and violate his word, but in resurrecting, giving life in the power of his spirit. And it's the presence of God's spirit within us that makes the difference, not just in how you might feel, but in how you can actually live. You see, if this is true, everything gets transformed in Jesus. The old way of the flesh is death, hostility, rebellion, and an offense to the God of the universe. But life in Jesus is peace, joyful submission, and a life that is pleasing to our maker and redeemer. But that transformation is only found in Jesus. So the duty of every Christian after Christmas is not to now somehow measure up to God's standards, however, much, however you might understand those to be. The duty of every Christian after Christmas is to know 
the Christ, crucified and risen for us all. Let us pray.